You're listening to The Togetherings, hosted by the Alaska Humanities Forum. The Togetherings are recorded conversations with Alaskans from all walks of life, sharing their perspectives on big questions that touch us all. Each series shares a common theme that is explored across episodes. Today's conversation is about relational healing and surrounding. Today, uh, we have Jennifer Andrewley, who is a traditional healer, teacher of the class Contemporary Applications of Ethnomedicine, and the owner of Traditions in Healing. And her website is traditionsinhealing.abmt.com. And next we have Lisa Maloney, who is a freelance writer and editor that has written three guidebooks and hundreds of articles about hiking and traveling in Alaska, and leads the bi-weekly Irish dance group in the Lusak Library when we're not social distancing due to a pandemic. And her website is maloneywrites.com. So before we get started, I just wanted to start with a, a native land acknowledgement and recognize that uh, for a lot of us, wherever we're tuning in from, we are on unceded, ungiven, untold indigenous land. First, I'd just like to ask both of you, how did you end up doing what you're doing um, in, in the world that you live in and the, the work that you do? Um, so Jennifer, let's start with you. How did you end up doing this plants and healing and traditional healing thing? Thank you. Uh, for this question, I am a member of the Manly Hot Springs tribe in the center of Alaska. It's north of Fairbanks, about 180 miles. And just honoring my mom and my ancestors for being progressive in remembering and being dedicated to remembering our old ways and blending into the new ways that came with settlers and colonizing families. So I just, I'm, I do the work. I've done this work my entire life. My mom taught me our local plants in Manly Hot Springs. And as we moved to uh, rural Fairbanks area, I was also taught the plants there. And then that transitioned into, as I got older, into my teen years, into healing hands and energy work through the lineage of Reiki. And she brought in teachers from California and the West Coast to teach Qigong and Tai Chi. And we studied with Athabascan and Yupik and Anupiak elders to learn old ways and blend them with new ways to support our community. That's uh, so amazing. I can't wait to have more conversations about that. Um, but Lisa, first, what led to you doing this, this writing thing? Uh, and, and dance if you want to include it, but really your, your primary thing that you do is writing, right? It is. And to, to be quite honest, I fell face first into it, which is how a lot of the positive things in my life have happened. It was never part of my life plan. Even spending much time outside is not something that I particularly grew up with, with uh, two small exceptions. 
One was that my mother grew up on a farm in New Mexico. And so every time we would go back maybe once a year to visit family, I would be let loose to run around in the mud and, uh, you know, chase the chickens or my in my sister's case, she got chased by the chickens. Uh, and then we were a military family, so we moved around all over the place. And for a short time, we were stationed in what was West Germany at the time. And there was something called Volksmarches or people walks, where people would just go walk. There, there was no race involved. You know, you weren't trying to be the fastest or the first to get there, but there'd be people at the start saying, go that way. And then at the end, you got a little pen, P-I-N type of pen with the need little stabby needle on it that you would put on a hat and you would just do all these little people walks and you would get all the pins and you'd have them all over your hat. And uh, I just remember really enjoying those. And I have this vague recollection of people being surprised. I was probably about six at the time. And I think they were, that's a pretty big kid. That would be a lot of kid to carry, but I think people were surprised to see someone that small just happily do, 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 <laughs> going through the woods. Uh, so those would have been maybe the only little seeds of connection there. And then uh, my life plan was to be a, a doctor at some point. And there was no pre-med degree here in Anchorage, so I was studying math because math is amazing and wonderful. And when people started saying, what are you going to do with your math degree? I surprised myself and I surprised them when I said, I'm going to be a writer. The words just sort of fell out of my mouth and everybody, including me, would go, huh? And people kept asking and I kept saying that. And finally hearing that come out of myself, I realized that I had better actually give it a try. Otherwise, it, something would be really strange and off. So I gave it a try. Uh, my first writing job was a weekly hiking column with the Anchorage Press, which is a little weekly newspaper here in town. The editor there happened to be a professor of journalism at UAF also. She gave me a wonderful education on the fly, as it were, and things just took off from there. So, so can I ask you both, why is being outside important to you out of anything that you could be doing, you're choosing to do it outside? Uh, why is that? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I was, I've been, uh, so I teach this class at the university in the fall time because I play during the summer and it's really hard to really be committed to being inside to hold space for a class. And so I was picking plants this summer and, and I, I realized that it, you know, just being there, just be, even if it's hiking or fishing or just walking the beach, but then if we know one plant and we start looking for that one plant everywhere, and maybe we pick that one plant and make tea, uh, the very act of that relationship with that, with the plants, looking for it, being excited to see it, um, just that is healing. And, and I, I just, with my mom's training, I know many plants. So there's a lot of joy for me when I'm in the forest and I see a particular variety of flower. I love edible flowers, the color and the brightness it brings to winter teas. 
Um, and then my grandparents taught me mushrooms. In a, you know, I probably know 10 varieties of mushrooms and, and they're such magical uh, creatures uh, from their own kingdom, the fungus kingdom. And uh, so for me, it's, it's, it's like a treasure hunt every time I'm out in nature and looking for beautiful rocks or feathers from uh, the from the birds and then we know you know the science piece that backs up you know this feeling I had is just our very exposure to nature and the molds and the fungus in the air boosts our immune system and so meaning we have a basically a, a reaction an allergic reaction to nature and that it boosts our immune system. Uh, growing up gardening, uh, my mom was um, taught how to garden in interior Alaska and that exposure to soil, um, you know, the futures in the soil and uh, that exposure to dirt is very important that we uh, play in it and have some of that dirt in our diet. And so some of the old stories would be, you know, we would travel between um, home sites and, you know, touch the earth or even taste the earth where we land because, um, you know, that is, it boosts our immune system. It makes us strong. Um, and many people have gotten away from, say, conscious connection to land you know the training is you go to the land for a very particular purpose of you know picking berries or fishing or hunting um so what we're uh, working with in my family is to take people back to the land with intention of connection and remembering through breath and movement and prayer and intention um, remembering what we have in our genetics and our DNA in that connection to the land from wherever we are on this planet. We have access through our bloodlines to a deeper knowing. And, and so through nature, cultivating and nurturing a, like a global perspective, we do the individual healing work of self and family and ancestors and tribe and clan. And through that, the, you know, our mission and vision is then on the other side of, is this interconnection between all people and healing between nations and this, a global centric view and nature is a way to access that. So, um, Excuse me, I realize we're on an audio podcast, so I'll just say for anybody listening, I um, I had quite a reaction listening to that. And I apologize for being so emotional, but I'd like to just be honest about it. Um, so there are two answers from me to that question. The very removed answer is that when I got that first job writing about hiking, it is because I was thinking to myself, what is something that I love doing that I know I would be doing anyway and that I'm going to keep doing for a long time that I can share with other people? Excuse me, I'm gonna take one second. Okay. 
And the other answer, though, and the one that is, um, I feel like I'm emotional this way because it resonates so much with what you said, Jennifer, or maybe what you said resonates so much with it, is that um, I don't know how to say this in a better way, but I'll just say, so I, I do come at this from the perspective of the colonizer. I don't know if that's exactly the right word, but I'm not indigenous to this land. And at the same time, when I was growing up, again, from a very small age, I remember um, feeling the lack of connection. I knew something was missing because I was not raised and, you know, no disrespect intended to my parents or anyone else in my family at all. But I was not raised with any sort of deep connection to anything, really. And for whatever reason, I was aware of the absence of that. I think a lot of us who are not raised with that connection, I don't know if we're all aware of it or if we just tune it out or if we're taught to, um, maybe we're just taught by example not to notice the lack of it. I don't know. But I know that I felt it very much and it hurt. And I apologize. This is absolutely not how I would have expected to react, but it's just the truth of where I am in the moment. I'm just remembering how much it hurt. And so you could say that when I was going outside, and I am remembering that on top of those little seeds that I mentioned when introducing myself, I remember my family thought I was very strange because when we got here to Alaska, I didn't want to play with Barbie dolls. I didn't want to play with the things that a small child was supposed to play with. There was a little green belt down the street from where we lived. And all I wanted to do was go out into the green belt and play with sticks and mud and dirt. And I remember knowing I just really felt like that's where my friends lived. I didn't have, I don't think, any cognizant idea of this stick is my friend, but I just mm. knew it was a friendly place. And it was forever irritating my entire family, I think, because I was too small to be allowed to go alone. So my older sister had to go with me. And I just remember her oh, again. Oh, this is horrible. Um, so anyway, from that small age, I just I hesitate to put it in cerebral terms because that wasn't my experience of it. But it's like I knew something was missing. And I think once you acknowledge that something is missing, you can start finding it. But the reason I balk at cerebral terms is because I it's not like in my head I said, aha, the solution is to go outside. It's just that there was something that I felt there that made me feel good and safe. And as I got older, I think maybe that turned into um, awareness that I was able to be, if not part of, then right up against something that is much bigger than me and something that is not within my control because I think we live with this very strange illusion that we are in control of the world around us. And I'm not sure that's a healthy way to live at all. I mean, 
and I say this as a freelancer who and I do have a day job now because the pandemic ate a lot of my writing work. But before that, for more than a decade, I worked from home and I had absolute control of anybody I would encounter and what I would do. And I remember thinking at one point, this is not healthy. This is not good. <laughs> so I started doing things deliberately that would put me in situations where I would not be in control because I wasn't anyway. So it seemed silly to pretend that I was. And, um, just with uh, being outside, I remember one of the things that I used to love to do was I would just hike up to the top of a mountain and I would just lay there and take a nap, which probably sounds like a silly thing to do, but it was just so comforting to, to, to have walked out of that illusion of total control and total separation, for lack of a better way to put it. Mm, thank you, Lisa, for sharing and, and, you know, just and being vulnerable. It's so beautiful to share this connection we have to, to earth. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate um, being included in the connection, you know, and I, maybe I should just say it, it doesn't hurt anymore <laughs> because, you know, there's, um, I, I think it doesn't hurt anymore because I recognize something was missing and have been letting myself follow whatever guides me toward what's there, you know, not, it, it doesn't change the way I grew up. Uh, and it, it's like a plant bending toward the sun, I guess, you know, there's, yeah, it, it feels good. What I wanted to add, I'm kind of late in entering the conversation around um, uh, so this. So uh, what I'll say is, uh, you know, so my my uh, father's family is from Italy and we immigrated in 1909. My great my grandfather came earlier in the 1800s fleeing political prosecution. And he went back to get the rest of the family and it took him 20 years to get back to America to get all the papers together. And so we left Italy and I would say before I had studied history and culture, I would be like, well, you know, I'm not going back there because we left for a reason. So I'm not going to go visit my relatives that are still in Italy. And then I've continued my research and study of uh, historical patterns. And, uh, you know, immigrants to America are here because they were fleeing something. And th the experience in the old world uh, was very drastic and it took drastic measures for people to leave their land and ancestors and everything they knew and all the plants that they knew to come here. Um, so another piece of that is, um, I believe it started in the 1500s was you know, religious prosecution of uh, medicine people in the old world, the uh, wise people, the plant medicine carriers, we can, you know, they were, um, they were basically called wise women and wise men. And the term became derogatory, which, you know, so we, you know, the prosecution of witches 
and sorcery. And that continues to this day. There's prosecution of wise people. And we would not be here as human beings if our ancestors were not wise to our plant medicines. And so on fear of death and prosecution, members of humanity were forced to forget the plant medicine and only eat domesticated plants where they could be tried for witchcraft for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so that's a piece of this genetic pain that all immigrants to America carry because they walked through uh, this prosecution before they came here. And then for Native Americans and Alaska Natives, and you know, we experienced very recently, my great grandmother, grandmother and mother all experienced, um, we'll say, we'll call it religious prosecution for believing in the old ways. And um, my, my grandmother had tattoos on the inside of her lip because it wasn't safe to have them on the outside. So, so that's a piece of that pain. And that's, what, that's the conversation that's, that's happening all over the world right now is, is healing and understanding uh, you know, who we are as human beings what our potential is of well-being, wellness, a state of will. I can definitely hear the truth in that, and I'm really glad to hear it. Um, I'm grateful for what you said about knowing the story of your own ancestors also. I think being disconnected from that story is another place where that hurt manifests. For example, on my father's side, there's the saying, loose lips sink ships. Well, my father's side of the family, all their ships are fully afloat and will be forever because they just, they don't talk to us and they certainly never talked about themselves. Uh, so one of the things that I have also done in in recognizing that hurt and the lack of something and saying, okay, what can I, uh, you know, something is missing. Where is it? Let's go find it. Is just learning what little bits I could about my ancestry. And um, because really we, we didn't know anything on my father's side. And so I don't know much to this day, but every little crumb that I have found has been like picking up a little thread off the ground and going, oh, there is a connection here to someone or something. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And you make maps. Has, or yeah. Your work inspires map making, right? If you can't write about hiking without creating a map. <laughs> Do you mean that figuratively or literally? Both, both. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah. And... You know, we're just really blessed right at this moment to have this access to, say, ancestry or three and me and 
right? We didn't have that, you know, even 10 years ago, and we might not have that 10 years from now. And so part of the work, there's no place to go but within. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yes, you know, for you as a hiker, you know, do your day hike and then, you know, and then go in, in nature after that movement when your body's exhausted, that's a great time to, you know, sit under a tree with your back against it and close your eyes and go within. And that's where that's, you know, the last frontier is inside and there cultivating heart knowing we have access to answers and it's cultivating trust in your own heart for those questions that arise. The support is within, so culture, cultivating and nurturing soul, self, awareness. I am so glad you articulated that because I am walking through that experience and I have been walking through that experience and I hope to keep walking through that experience for the rest of my life. But I lack a lot of the framework to really articulate it. You know, I might be able to sort of sideways back into articulating it by mistake, but I struggle actually, which might sound like a silly thing for a writer to say, especially. uh, I struggle to put things like that in words as articulately as you just have. I sort of feel like I can sketch out the negative space so I can use words to describe the things around it and then let people fill it in themselves. But I, you know, I'm still not sure how to, whatever the opposite of negative space would be, I guess, positive space. I still don't know how to actually draw in the thing with words, which, which is okay, by the way, I'm, I'm okay with that. Maybe I'm not supposed to be drawing it in with words. Maybe I'm supposed to be drawing in that negative space and then people can put whatever they want inside of it. But I'm, I'm grateful that you're able to articulate it that way. Mm, Thank you. Um, Thank you both so much. Um, I, I have a question though, as someone who hasn't been on an outdoor journey recently as much um, in terms of things like, well, but, but life gets in the way or, you know, these kinds of responses that I think sometimes come from fear of, you know, of being in an outside space where maybe someone has less experience with that, but we also crave connection right now. And you both hit on the idea of disconnect and, and reconnecting and and reconnection. Uh, But for some people, that's kind of a scary idea. Um, So for folks who maybe haven't ever climbed up a mountain and taken a nap um, or who don't know, (laughs) 10 different kinds of mushrooms and plants and, or, you know, thing. And, you know, some people who look at a mushroom and say, well, I wonder what that is. And then just keep on walking, <laughs> you know, um, what ideas, do you have any ideas for starting that? Um, I know for myself, from a disability advocacy perspective, I'm not going to start with hiking up a mountain. So um, what are the baby steps that people can take to get started on this kind of reconnecting and healing journey outside? Mm. Well, 
so I used to live in Anchorage. I now live on uh, Kenaitse land in, uh, on, the, on the Kenai River. It's traditionally called the Kotnu River. And so in my time in Anchorage, I would find these little places close to town. Okay, so uh, my favorite place is Falls Creek because you get around the corner and there's water and water takes away all the sound of vehicles. So um, it, also when we look at safety, right? We talk about safety and outdoor adventuring. Uh, if you're not an outdoor person, you go with at least one other person until you're comfortable going to the places you've identified as comfortable places to be. Um, there's underutilized parks by water throughout Anchorage. Um, so getting out the maps and looking at what's close, it doesn't have to be far away. I like, you know what, Anchorage is 15 minutes away from Alaska. <laughs> I think we might be 30 minutes away from Alaska oh, no, now, it's actually, it's sprawling a little bit. Yeah, it's changed. <laughs> and so go with somebody with that intention. It's all about intention in my work. Practice breath and movement in nature. And if, you know, if that's at Kincaid Park or Falls Creek or the parks along water uh, where there's a little bit more activity, but you can get off the trail 25 feet and blend in with nature and nobody's going to see you being there. That's very comfortable for most people to access. That's my input. Lisa, do you have ideas? Yeah, actually, I do. Um, maybe the first thing I'll actually say is that I, it, I'm really glad you mentioned going with somebody else or, else or some degree of safety, because I don't want to make it sound like when I say I used to walk up a mountain and take a nap, that's not necessarily the um, recommended thing to do. <laughs> but uh, if there's something that you do want to do, and you're not comfortable doing it, my advice would be to expand your comfort zone include that thing. And sometimes that takes a while and it might mean learning some skills. It might mean just getting um, that base of experience and a feel for what you're doing. It might mean finding people you can go with. Uh, but I think that again, just from my own experience of coming from a place of disconnect and everyone will have a different experience. So I don't want to overly generalize, but just from the little window that I'm looking at life through, if you start disconnected, it's really easy to continue disconnected and you can be disconnected outside just as much as anywhere else. So I think there's sometimes a habit of throwing ourselves into the outdoors on projection mode, you know, all output, no input. And when we do that, we're missing the connection again. So uh, and I do think one way that manifests is in people uh, maybe actually a mild manifestation of that would be people jumping right into trips that they're actually not ready for and actually putting themselves in danger or the people who might need to rescue them in danger. So uh, if we dial back the output a little bit and if we dial up the input, so we start listening, we start paying attention, we start being willing to take things a little slower and let that feedback circuit connect so that we're part of a loop instead of just this arrow shooting itself 
out into the wild, then I think that uh, it builds connection. I'll also say, you know, the pandemic has been a great learning experience for me because I am used to moving a lot and I am used to going from one place to another and then eventually coming back, but not always the same way, both figuratively and literally. And I actually haven't done that as much during the pandemic as I normally would. Honestly, because there are so many people outside, which is great on one level, but I'd pull up to my usual favorite trailheads or favorite places to be, and I would just look at the number of cars or I'd look at the number of people and I'd say, oh, holy smokes, it's crowded here. And then I would turn around and leave. Uh, so what I started doing instead is I live close to an urban lake. And so I started spending a lot of time on the lake. So I didn't necessarily go anywhere in space, but boy, I started seeing things that I um, and hadn't necessarily noticed before, or I started uh, learning more about things that I had noticed. So now I know I have a pretty good idea, I think, where the ospreys like to hang out. I don't see their nest, but I know which tree they always come out of when they go looking for fish. Um, you know, I know where all the grebes on the lake are hanging out. Uh, I learned what, I think it's a northern solid owl that uh, has sort of been moving into this part of the state along with climate change, apparently. I learned what those sound like last winter. They sound like a building alarm. <laughs> so I was actually pretty scared the first time I heard one coming toward me in the dark because I, I actually thought, oh, it sounds like there's an alarm at that building over there. Maybe I'd better go make sure it's not a low-key fire alarm. I'd better make sure there's not a problem. And so I was walking through the woods in the dark to get to it. And then I heard the quote unquote alarm coming toward me. And I thought, oh no, this is how all the horror movies start. I better <laughs> book it out of here, Pat. <laughs> no rule. That's not an alarm. Whatever it is, I'm getting out of here. And then um, when I heard the alarm go by my bedroom window late one night, I finally said, okay, either it's space aliens or it's an owl of some sort. I'd better find out what that is so that I can rest easy at night. But um, so, although it is a lovely thing to go places, I am not sure that's the only way to connect. And I, again, remember that maybe I was connect connecting more with nature than I thought during my own childhood, because one of the things I would do is we lived in a house in the middle of the city here, and there was this big, beautiful tree outside, and I would just go hang out in the tree because I thought it was just the most beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, I, I am absolutely open to being corrected, but I feel like that also is connecting with nature, and it doesn't require... Climbing up in the tree, of course, required some mobility, but being near the tree wouldn't necessarily. So I, I think that there are um, there are connections available to all of us, even if it's a little tiny, tiny connection, but it's there. And it's all equally valid, I really think. Thank you, Lisa. And to add to that, you know, uh, when there is no one to go, with you. Some of the companions can be books. There's uh, a couple of books that I really love, which uh, are the Alaska Wildflower book, and it's uh, organized by color of flower, so you can identify plants along your walk. And then Alaska Wilderness Medicines by Janice Schofield. It's a small pocket guide to about 25 plants that are easy to identify 
So have that companionship of books or apps that identify plants and uh, local fungi. And then, you know, build community because plant people have been harvesting plants for as long as they have. And if you hear that in conversation, uh, make you know, expand your friendship circle, get their phone number, meet in nature, go on excursions with them. Um, plant people often uh, that I know we're often we're doing things alone because yeah people express interest but it's hard to create a schedule uh, for going with others but um, as I've gotten older I've, I've made that time as a plant person I'd be like okay I'm going Tuesday at three and nothing's going to stop me but as people ex kept asking please can I go uh, you know I would modify my schedule so one of the things, you know, we talk about medicine people uh, is you got to ask three or four times to be invited because we're looking for commitment. Be harvesting plants is work, right? You got to get to where you're going. You take a walk, you pick the plants, you then have to uh, process them. And then you, which could be drying, cleaning, drying, and then making a product out of it. So it's just not a one day experience. And so we're looking for people who are committed too. So if, if you uh, happen to know somebody who is more of an herbalist or a plant medicine person, we're looking for commitment because sometimes silence is better than ask, you know, answering a million questions of somebody who's not going to do anything because it's just words, 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 right? So without a question and a quest, specifically, we might not say anything. So come to Medicine People with questions. And if we take time for your questions and quest and take you into nature, do something with medicine. If you don't, we are less likely to teach you the next plant because there's no follow through, right? There's a, it's, you know, 2021, there's a lot of information out there and time is precious and it's non-renewable. So, you know, come to the work with commitment and we will see that and support your growth and connection to that deeper connection to plants through breath, movement, intention, and cultivation. And if it's just, say, just a berry picker, uh, yeah, berry pickers love companionship, right? I, there was a brown bear hanging around my blueberry patch this year, and I definitely invited everybody I knew to go with me <laughs> because I was a little sketched out about this brown bear. Um, so, and berry picking is so valuable. I just clean and dry my berries, put them in the freezer, uh, so they don't stick together. And I just used them without adding any extra sugar. And they're one of our most potent superfoods in Alaska. Cranberries, low bush cranberries, uh, what my family called bear berries and uh, rose hips. These are all autumn, late August, September. I've even picked some uh, low bush cranberries into November. And uh, it's something to do and very easy to learn. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, one, one thing that I do 
um, with a couple of friends because I don't have the ability to go out and, you know, that you mentioned the whole, the whole scope and range and arc of the work. Uh, but I still have some like physical limitations is I'll, I'll pick with some friends closer into town. Um, and one thing that I'll do is I'll always give a portion of what I pick to the person that allowed me the honor of picking with them. I, I also just want to share in terms of that output versus input when it relates to gathering. Um, can you share a little bit about how to do that safely? Because I think when we pair the idea of our yearn for nature with the kind of input we're getting of like consumerism, we also have this idea of overpicking. We have to not over harvest so that we can have some left for later. Um, and so um, I'm not sure how to ask the question, but I think it's an important thing to uh, dial back the idea of kind of performative gathering where someone might gather a bunch of stuff and then they bring it home and they don't know what to do with it. And then it just ends up getting thrown out or they don't know who to give it to, or, you know what I mean? Like, all right. Yeah. That's a beautiful question. Uh, so there's, there's two things to talk about. One is, are these protocols around harvesting, which is depending on the lineage you learn, you pick a quarter of the berries or the plant in the community that you find it. So you only take a quarter or less. And or what you're going to use or share. The other piece that's very important is we're talking about in our community, our Alaska Native community and the Bioneers community around bringing plants closer to home into your say your own onto your own land and or a community land like a friend's land who is stationary and the plants can grow there and live there so community gardens where we bring the plants closer and that transplant well so the medicines are we don't need very many of these plants right it's nice to have access to 30 different plants within a one mile radius of our home and so uh, some grow well down by the river some grow well here in the spruce forest i'm in and so i'll um, even use you know our beautiful i mean our the people's land right state land federal land blm land um you know to use our public resources um to which is legal right we have rights to access plants on these lands um and 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 if that means transplanting a few nettle plants over by the cottonwood trees where they're going to grow well, I will do that. So I have access to this um, plant medicine. And then it supports the, the animals that love nettles. And, you know, so, so again, protocols around not over harvesting, sharing the harvest, sharing with elders, sharing with people who like the plants that you're gathering. And then, We've, um, and then gardening, right? This, uh, we didn't have a word for gardening per se, but we moved plants closer to our homes and we, we knew where things were on our 
route around, you know, as we traveled around, we knew where things were. And that's really powerful. Do you have anything to add to that, Lisa? Um, not particularly. I have always had sort of a vague idea that it would be rude to take everything. And so I just don't. But I have never had a, a particular protocol as such. So maybe if anyone is listening from a place of not having that protocol either, then listening to things yeah. like what you just said is a great place to start building that awareness or again, just realizing uh, maybe things don't work the way I've always been told, <laughs> you know, uh, because there are a lot of us, I think that function from a place of um, I need, I need, I need, I need, fill the endless need, keep throwing more into that need. And I think it's easy to take that attitude uh, into the toilet paper aisle <laughs> during a pandemic, <laughs> but it also could manifest in, in other ways. So maybe even just recognizing again, yeah, maybe there's something here I don't know. So maybe I'll listen and I'll learn something about it. And that's so beautiful, Lisa. Yeah, the listening, because another aspect of uh, this reciprocal relationship we have with all living things, we as human beings survive because we eat other living things, plants and animals. And out of respect for the life of these other living things, which we are in relationship with, we offer thanks prayer, intention, when we're in nature. Mm -hmm. Maybe just to branch off from that, if I were going to, um, I'm trying to think of a good example, maybe if I were going to go whitewater rafting, I would immediately look at that and I'd go, oh, that's not in my skill set. I'm not ready for that. <laughs> I need some help getting ready for that. And I don't see that it is any different in, say, gathering, for example. I think it's natural maybe to look at that and go, oh, you know, I haven't actually been prepared to do that. So, and then I think hopefully if right. people are open, yeah. we can start looking for the sort of intentionality and awareness that you're describing. I love right. yeah. that about bringing stuff home. Sorry, go ahead, Jennifer. Oh, well, what I was going to add to that is, you know, not if, you know, so all, all of our ancestors knew some of the plants, right? The food plants. And, but there were, there are specialists who work with plants as medicine. And, uh, and so we're not all medicine people, right? We can eat, we can look at domesticated plants and say, if you eat too much of this plant, it's bad for you. You're going to turn orange if you eat too many carrots. Right? So it's that balance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's true. So, uh, yeah. So this aspect that I come from, I just happen, it's hard for me to talk about nature without, you know, talking about the plant piece. But, you know, the other piece that is just so important is, you know, that is to be in nature just to appreciate it. And I just really loved my dad for, you know, this training growing up, 
we spent a lot of time in nature and we weren't hunting, we weren't fishing, we were not hiking really. We were just in nature and he was teaching me wayfinding like he would hike us into a place and then I was to find our way back to the boat. And uh, so this just this very just being in nature, in the silence and the beauty uh, without need, you know, needing anything from nature, but just it being, um, you know, that's a beautiful way to just be in nature. The people who are spending time in nature, so the hikers and the fishermen and the mountain climbers and the rock climbers, they're amazing because they also see the changes that are happening in nature. They see the changes in the watershed, in the fish returns, in the drying or maybe increase in moisture and are doing great work to support awareness of uh, changing climate and And so just a lot of respect for the different organizations out there that support bringing people into nature uh, where then they can be there with themselves or, you know, with another uh, because they've had this group that has supported their understanding of being in nature. I've seen changes in my life by growing up. The coldest year of my life was 1989, and it didn't get above 50 below for three weeks, and it got down to 70 below. That hasn't happened since 1989. And then I see flowers blooming twice. We'll get a second blooming of rose or cranberries will bloom a second time in September. It's changes that if I wasn't in nature every year of my life, I, I wouldn't notice this. You know, I just really love to see that there's more people accessing our wildlands. That connection to nature will help us uh, thrive in the coming years. I agree wholeheartedly. And I can't help but uh, when you mention people accessing our wildlands, I don't mean to take things into a very negative direction, but I immediately think of Uh, what seemed to happen last year when there were a lot of people who maybe couldn't travel out of state because of the pandemic. And so they thought, uh, I'm going to go outside instead, which is wonderful until you end up with people um, throwing their trash outside or uh, their food scraps Outside, I know it's sometimes a hotly contested issue because they go, well, this orange peel is natural, so shouldn't I be able to throw it outside and some little critter will come along and eat it and it's the circle of life. There you go. And um, I just, I, I wanted to bring that up as a facet of, I think, what sometimes happens. And I'm not sure what question I'm trying to ask here, but there's There's some sort of a a question in here about, um, I might need some help to ferret the question out, but it's something along the lines of what might you say to the people who are throwing orange peels into the wood, for example, or who are, um, you know, gosh, I drive along our highways a lot and a lot of the places where it's nice to stop and look around. I, I hate to bring up such a crass image, but you get out and the bushes are just decorated with toilet paper. And 
I just look at that and I go, oh, you know, here's the downside of people getting outside. Is Do you have any thoughts on uh, how to balance that out or how to, how to bring people away from that? I think that's what I'm asking because it's people who do that sort of thing, they usually have a reason for it. And they're not often open to hearing anything that contradicts that reason. Right. Well, this, I hear Canada has amazing facilities all along the Alaska Highway, Alaska Canadian Highway. And, uh, you know, so every, you know, whatever, 50 miles, there's a rest stop. We did not do that when our state was flush with money, <laughs> you know, so I don't see any sort of improvement in our roadside support of travelers in the near future. We've missed that opportunity now. So, and, and then, you know, it, it reminds me of this, you know, this consumer mentality of just throwing things away. We throw so much away, you know, at the dump. And, you know, so it's a huge societal issue. I think things are created to be thrown away, to not last very long. People throw it away at the dump. So then in nature, they do the same thing. It's convenience, very convenient to get the smell out of your space and into nature and nature will, uh, you know, process this. Well, yeah, it will in a million years. It just <laughs> takes time. And most likely because of, say, a mindset of consumption, people are not thinking about seven generations from now. Um, so we could have some help, you know, in the sense of, you know, more signage at these rest areas, um, education at the outdoor stores, not just, you know, selling all these items, but, you know, that there's a message from the corporate seller about keeping America clean, keep our parks clean. You know, people just don't know. It's ignorance, literally. And so how do we teach that but okay well is it the school system that teaches how to respect nature um and then we could look at well why does the school system exist and what is it for and where did it come from and is it in you know the best interest to teach the children to respect nature how did we get so far away from nature and so, yeah, it's a huge societal question. I don't know how to clean it up other than, uh, you know, in it, every rest stop along every highway in Alaska is a contaminated zone of human and dog feces. And, um, you know, it's not as, you know, we would need special equipment to go in there and clean it up. At this point, 60 years of contamination into the watershed. How depressing yeah, and how true. On I'm, that, oh, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> if I could add one thing to that, I'm reminded of. Uh, I'm I'm not so active in the local newspapers anymore, but when I was, I was usually writing for the outdoors sections. And every year, when winter would start to roll around, I don't know if I can speak for my editors or for other writers there. But for me, the idea of avalanche safety always popped up because that's mm -hmm. another thing I think that uh, maybe just doesn't even become a blip on people's radars. In 
unless or until they find themselves personally affected and what you know can have catastrophic consequences and so uh, i remember that for years every winter I'd, I'd think what is a new angle that we can take to get this information in front of people that is not just a banner that says you know avalanches are dangerous they're not random learn something will ya because people have probably seen that kind of direct messaging so much that they've developed a habit of tuning it out. So I'm reminded that it uh, sometimes seemed helpful to find a way of packaging the avalanche safety message just a little differently so that it would sneak in underneath the I've tuned this out, I've heard this before sort of uh, feeling that people might quite accurately have about it. And I can, I'm just reminded that's probably something that um, is useful for lots of things. And I, I know I try to do it when it comes to uh, leave no trace and things like that. But obviously, mm -hmm. there, there's room for a lot, lot more of that. Yeah, safety in nature is so important. So safety within a group, you know, bear awareness, uh, another technique is having a walking stick, like especially when berry picking or around bogs, floating bogs, cranberry or blueberry bogs. And the, those could have underground lakes and even rivers. So that's why uh, we often carry walking sticks. Uh, we would always have a walking stick because that is um, in the winter, on ice, lakes, rivers, um, have you have a stick with you, and and I think these the lighter weight walking, you know, from REI, those walking sticks are very um, light and helpful. It takes pressure off the knees, and would um, have that awareness of surroundings. The same thing. We had some guests uh, from. Florida here visiting and I would much rather be aware of moose and bears than snakes and spiders. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to feel that way too. If something's coming for you up here, at least it's big enough that you'll notice it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Legit. Yes. A friend of mine posted a picture of a snake and I was like, oh, I'll take my moose. I'll take <laughs> reason number 300 to live in Alaska. Um, so, so uh, we're about to wrap up. Um, I just want to share a couple of things that I've taken away that I super appreciate um, the idea of bringing things home and the idea of, of uh, not necessarily having to do outside the way that the person next to you is doing outside. So um for me, for example, I've started uh, letting our dandelions grow and not having to cultivate that lawn, you know, and, and that means that I get to do dandelion jelly and I get to do dandelion tea and it's so fun. And, uh, and the person next to me does spruce, you know, spruce tips. And I don't know what to do with spruce tips, but they don't know what to do with dandelions. And so it's a really cool little ecosystem we're building here. Um, and so there are different ways of doing nature. Um, and so I, that's one thing I'm getting out of this that I super appreciate. 
You, you look like you want to say yeah. something. Oh, <laughs> so you had said earlier to, you know, about uh, people who maybe have some limitations in accessing nature. So maybe, you know, later in the year, right? It's not things you have to bend over for, but it's the, the fireweed flowers or the tall blueberries and blackberries that grow in girdwood. So it's the things you don't have to lean over for. So finding, you know, those places and plants that you know, work with your ability and then you can still learn and, and grow with that. Mm -hmm. And then trade, whatever, like you were saying, right? You're working with dandelion. So then this idea of trading with others, hey, I have a lot of this. Would you trade? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We used to do that way more, right? That's how we are here now, was we had trade amongst families and communities. And um, it's so profitable and amazing that's why it's illegal right there's laws and rules against trading because it's not taxable right so this roman law that got transferred here to america on you know disempowering people's connection to each other and nature because it you know removed the middleman um you know So we've been working in our Alaska Native communities around, um, you know, reigniting the trade amongst the medicine uh, people, the plant people, uh, because we all have access to different plants in our region. And we've always traded. And that was literally, you know, squelched about 100 years ago. And so we're we're revitalizing that. I love that. Um, so, so we are just about out of time. Sorry, go ahead, Lisa. Sorry, I was waving my hand. If I could just tack one thing on with the idea of access and uh, also building on what Jennifer had said earlier about not necessarily having to be out in nature with an agenda, as it were. And, and that's my words, not, not yours. I apologize for not remembering exactly how you put it. But uh, there are an increasing number of accessible trails out there. And I, I have to apologize for my ignorance because I've uh, been told in the past, I remember one time I mentioned a, a trail that I thought was great for accessibility. And then I found out that the gravel on it would maybe require a special sort of wheel for somebody who's in a wheelchair. So apologizing for my ignorance because I cannot say 100% what type of accessibility there is, but in terms of people with limitation challenges, if I could just quickly name off some trails that are pretty close to Anchorage, uh, Reflections Lake has gone from being just a beautiful little gravel pit that turned itself into a lake into um, quite a lovely place. There is a stretch of boardwalk and I can't remember if it's wide enough for a wheelchair, but I believe it is. And then it's lovely because there are places where the trail used to go up and down these steep little hills. And then there is a a level um, uh, alternative trail that you can take to get around those. So the whole thing I believe is completely accessible. Um, The trail of blue ice in Portage. 
is at least in terms of grade very accessible that is the one that i believe there might be a little bit of gravel that might or might not require sort of a, a specialized um, chair if you happen to be in a wheelchair and then um, oh the exit glacier trail which is not near anchorage it's very near seward uh, and I'm not positive about the wheelchair suitability, but if we're talking about somebody who maybe walks and just needs a chance to rest or needs relatively even ground, that's a pretty amazing trail because you can see the glacier and you can see all kinds of beautiful viewpoints, but it's mostly flat and there are, by Alaska standards at least, there are a lot of benches. So you could just go point to point if you wanted to have a chance to rest or you know, just um, sit, sit and enjoy wherever you've gotten to before turning around. And uh, I believe any new trails built on US Forest Service land as of, I don't remember how many years back, they're actually required to hew to a certain standard of accessibility. So even though there aren't necessarily a ton of those now, there are some, and I think we can look forward to more. Uh, another beautiful accessible mm. place that I think often gets um, under-acknowledged is the Potter Marsh Boardwalk outside of Anchorage, which is a nice, wide, totally accessible boardwalk. And it's just lovely. That's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so making it available to everyone is lovely. Uh, so so uh, we're just about out of time, but I would just like to um, invite you each to say some closing words. And so do um, either of you have some advice or closing thoughts that you'd like to share for the people that are listening? Did you just rock, paper, scissors for who's going to go first? <laughs> I did, but Jennifer's not rock, paper, scissoring with me. <laughs> Maybe I'll go ahead uh, if that's okay. <laughs> I win by default because I was the only you, one You won be, because you were unmuted. Oh, oh okay. Oh, see, I was like, oh, I got to reach for my mute button. So I was like, you were already unmuted. So go ahead. Gotcha. Okay. So I would just say uh, it's if... You're looking for a connection. The connection lives inside of you. And again, that's building off a lot of what Jennifer had said earlier. And that means that it doesn't have to look like anybody else's connection. Uh, there are people up here who do, you know, their amazing, uh, excuse me, their easy walk in the park would be a full on expedition for me. And vice versa, I'm sure. So, uh, and then there are people who appreciate just sitting next to a tree or under a tree because that also is a wonderful thing to do. So um, actually I'd like to correct what I said earlier about um, tiny connections because I think that was a poor choice of words. I, I think that any connection matters and every connection matters. So whatever that looks like for you in the moment, do it. Because if, if you approach it from a place of um, openness and seeing what is there instead of trying to project what you think is there onto it, I guarantee you will see something amazing, even if it is just on your front lawn. And, uh, and then the idea of expanding your comfort zone. Again, you know, you don't have to jump into something that feels uncomfortable and unsafe. And in fact, you really shouldn't. But if it's something you want to do, 
you can take steps to make it a comfortable and safe, or at least bring it closer toward comfortable and safe. Going back to our intention today, which was relational healing and surroundings. And I really love, you know, how we're both talking about, you know, the, it's a journey, it's a personal journey to nature. And from my perspective, go into nature with intention. If you're not used to setting intention, you'll learn as you continue setting intention for your experiences in nature. And so the first one would be, you know, relational healing. Go into nature with that intention of relational healing and cultivate connection to heart through conscious breath and presence in the moment awareness of the thoughts that arise letting them go seeking moments of silence and nature is wonderful for that because in that place we have no other noises only self and to get to the point of only hearing nature and no inner thoughts is a beautiful experience and so cultivating that relationship with self so those inner voices are silenced and you are at one with nature in that moment in the present and i love nature for that experience because here in alaska right it's it can be dangerous <laughs> so all of our senses are activated we're listening to every sound and what is that and we're smelling right because that's part of our survival mechanism is if we smell something then it could mean this or that uh, we're looking and expanding our purse uh, our field of perception to see to the side all around as much as we can see and take in and touching you know things uh, so being in nature really improves that relationship we have to self to senses to tolerances uh, and then that in, intention to uh, pay attention to the loops in our mind the conditions and tolerances that hold us back from you know, our human potential and then keep going back to the you know, and like Lisa said, it's to, you know, to our lawn, to the trees in our uh, park, to, you know, the quiet creek, walks out all noise, and build connection and community with a couple of people in our lives who are willing to go to nature with intention. Beautiful. This is how we change our lives and... Um, I think, you know, it's a way of changing the world, the world that we live in. <laughs>